0: This is John Deek with 25 years of The Very Young Composers, a program of the New York Philharmonic, and we're hearing a work by Jordan Millar, composed when she was 11 years old, and it was called Boogie Down, Uptown. This is scene 12, finding the way in New York City. Unbelievable. New York City, like a moss to the flame, I would always be hopelessly drawn to this city. I still am. That year, 1969, would be a year of dizzying cross-currents, exciting, conflicting, exhilarating, depressing, and even a brush with horror. After I'd phoned Carol, telling her about the successful audition, she said, Can I even talk to you now? I noted a hint of jealousy there. (laughs) Anyway, after the Philharmonic audition, there were still several months to complete at the University of Illinois. As I mentioned, the influence of contemporary music there was compelling. I began to write down some of the improvisations that our close-knit group of Fulkerson, Howell, and Udow produced almost daily. Our backgrounds and tastes were diverse, and we often included several jazz-oriented performers and some of the new electronics when available. I was also taken by the music of George Crumb, The Beatles, Janis Joplin, the music of India, and Jimi Hendrix. Hendrix's ability to create a sort of talking guitar style influenced my own playing. I began to gather enough confidence to renew my composing. (sighs) Composing. Amazing how much confidence it takes and for most people gobs of encouragement. Well I did anyway. But finally, I wrote two solo contrabass pieces, one based on imagery, color studies, and another based on surrealist paintings, surrealist studies. If I hadn't received genuine support, I never would have dared to show them. But these works were later published and were performed by a number of bassists all over. Anyway, I arrived in New York as a bassist composer, or composer-bassist. Yeah, I was totally thrilled to be playing in the orchestra, the sound, the action, the amazing soloists and and conductors, and yet I was thinking that, well, maybe after a few years of playing in the Philharmonic, that I might leave to join a contemporary music ensemble somewhere. But there was yet another cross-current in the air of the city which had an enormous effect on me, social and political activism. Arriving in New York alone, I was dismayed particularly by the brutal real estate scene. Even though I felt I had a good-paying job, the best apartment I could find was actually smaller and more run-down than the one we'd had back in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. I wondered how people less fortunate than I could possibly afford to live in Manhattan. I mention this point because when Carol arrived, she found fertile ground for her natural tendency for political action. I was similarly inspired, not so much for the radical politics, but out of an empathy for those who had to struggle for a living and had so few opportunities. So I became active, even to the point of taking a bullhorn and speaking in Spanish and English to crowds of housing rights demonstrators in Manhattan Valley and Spanish Harlem. Coupled with the fact that my head was already spinning with such a wild variety of new music, I was naturally a bit of an upstart amongst the old guard at Lincoln Center. Picture this. Back then, most men wore a coat and tie to rehearsals. At one of my first rehearsals, I showed up in a dashiki, an African-inspired flowing shirt and hiking boots. The contrast couldn't have been more stark. I was immediately cast as a young radical, But lest I be thought of as an aggressive, wild-eyed loudmouth, no, I was still quite shy, a hangover from my childhood. But imagine! My first Young People's Concert! Even though Bernstein had officially relinquished the music directorship, he was still in great demand for the Young People's Concerts, for tours and recordings. And here he was, my idol, an inspiration from my childhood deep in the sand dunes of Indiana. And now I was going to be part of his orchestra. Here were world-famous musicians like Harold Gomberg, the great oboist, Julius Baker, the flutist, Stanley Drucker, great clarinetist, the amazing concertmaster David Nadian, or, or Saul Goodman, the timpanist who had played with Toscanini in 1928. (laughs) <laughs> and here I was, actually on stage with them. But I'll never forget the entrance of Bernstein at that first rehearsal. We were all on stage, tuned and waiting. Finally, five or ten minutes late, he enters like a diva, floating down the marble staircase. "'God, how I've missed you! How've you been, Gino?' And he claps the shoulder of one of the backstands of violinists. "'Marty, I hear you got married. Jack, how are you feeling after your operation?' And by the time he gets to the first stands, he's hugging, kissing everyone, and believe me, not just polite pecks on the cheek, either. Crushing his cigarette in an ashtray provided at the side of the score desk, and taking a swig out of some nameless liquid in a glass, he yawns and moans. Oh, God, what do we have this morning? What's this? As if he'd never seen the score before. Stravinsky, Firebird. Suddenly... Yes, listen to this, and we play the murky opening. How magically old Igor conjures up the depth of this dark forest. You can just hear the moist vapors rising from the rotted tree stumps, and... No, you aren't together, and it's far too loud. Again. Of course I was spellbound, (laughs) thrilled to be on the other side of the camera for these concerts. But they weren't just his extemporaneous outpourings. Every bit was meticulously rehearsed and constantly edited. The genius behind the genius was Roger Englander, who advised L.B. on every sentence, every phrase, every gesture... And we rehearsed like crazy. On the day of the telecast, we showed up at 8 a.m., dressed for the concert, striped formal afternoon trousers, and our two women, the aforementioned Orin O'Brien, the great bassist and the cellist Van Benedetti, in ankle-length black dresses. Our shirts had to be a special tint of light blue because the TV cameras of the day couldn't handle the brilliance of white. <laughs> Beyond all the rehearsing, we did two complete takes of the program with audience, so Mr. Englander and the editors could pick the best of each. I will be forever blessed to have been part of LB's last seven Young People's Concerts. Besides the Stravinsky, there were Beethoven's Fidelio, The Anatomy of the Orchestra, Aaron Copland's 70th Birthday, Strauss's Zaratustra, Liszt and the Devil, and Holst's planets. Oh, the revelations, one after another. I'd never been a great fan of Richard Strauss's Thus Spake Zarathustra, even though I had devoured Nietzsche wholesale back at Oberlin. But in L.B.'s hands, we made Zarathustra positively leap from earth up into the clouds in that marvelous passage, and I could hear it, see it, feel it, play it, and even physically touch it. Oh, what a gigantic magic cauldron is the symphony orchestra! We played four and sometimes five concerts a week. It was relentless. Still, in the afternoons and any night I had off, I went downtown to the fecund, fertile, roiling atmosphere of Soho, which was then a center of what was called the avant-garde. I wanted so much to be a part of that, to learn from it and hopefully contribute something, As always, my life's quest was, where will the new music come from? Music that could animate the orchestra and inspire the people, as the so-called great masters had done. Where? In Soho, I made friends with Jim Burton, among many others. I also played with Laurie Anderson, Don Cherry, followed Steve Reich, and even played once with Philip Glass at The Kitchen. We formed groups, sat up late at night discussing art and who was making it. Jim Burton was primarily a visual artist who had gravitated towards sound. We collaborated on countless ideas, pieces, concerts. We were both adepts of John Cage. Jim was at the time quite the rising new music star with critics of the press, not an easy thing to accomplish in New York. His masterpiece, as far as I'm concerned, was the construction of this giant scaffold, five stories high, which we built piece by piece in the lobby atrium of a bank building downtown. There were elaborate wires strung within it at all angles. We were to climb among the scaffolding with instrument bows, bass bows, cello bows, or rosined leather strips, and excite the vibrations of the structure, whether lateral or longitudinal. In other words, we discovered that a wire or string, when excited to vibrate longitudinally, gave an entirely different pitch, timbre, and set of overtones from when the same wire was activated laterally, as one does with a violin, right? The effect was beyond haunting, mysterious, even magnificent. Jim had arranged the score quite scientifically, and it was as if we'd made the whole structure, indeed the whole building, come alive with never-before-imagined sound. I felt like I was inside the body of a living work of art. Soho, Lincoln Center, in the streets of Harlem, down and across in three endless dimensions. I was alive in a city both depressing and invigorating, monstrously disfigured yet beautiful, destructive and life-giving. Somewhere within these streets was going to be the secret I had been searching for all my life. Why was it taking me so long to uncover it, to clarify, to bring it to life? But never mind now. One thing I had taught myself was patience patience and persistence.